Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now, I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online, and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough, and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then, and you're re- Reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email from a, a listener who said, Carol, it seems like your show is more for partners than for sex addicts. Is that true? Well, the truth of the matter is it is for both of you. Now, early on, within my first year of doing this show, back in 2007, what I realized was that more women were listening to, to, you know, what I gathered, understand the sex addict better. And so I knew that I was going to have to help her to understand you, while some of you really were tuning in to understand yourself. And then I started getting emails and letters from listeners, and it was primarily women, and they were indeed contacting me because they had so many questions about addiction, how it affected sex addicts, how their husbands could have done this to them. So it really is for either one of you. I know that next week's show is solely for the sex addicts. Again, partners will really appreciate hearing about the different types of treatment for sex addicts. And, of course, I hate using that term sex addicts because we like to call it compulsive sexual behavioral disorder. That's what's recognized by the World Health Organization. But I am so, um, when, I, when I use that term, my guys typically say, are you talking about me? I'm a sex addict. 
So there is no shame in being called a sex addict in good recovery. I promise you. And today I am super excited because I'm going to be talking with Rebecca Rosenblum. And she is a woman who has written books. She's got a YouTube channel out there. She does TV. Um, She really has made it her own. And when I say that, I, I mean to say that she is a Ph.D., and she's a registered psychotherapist. She's a certified trauma and sex addiction therapist. She's a Haverton practitioner. We're going to have to ask her about that. She's a TV host. She's an author. I mean, she does a little bit of everything. And she's going to be talking about how important it is for partners who have experienced so much betrayal, how we can actually get them to a place where they no longer feel so stuck. And that is important because the truth of the matter is partners do feel stuck. So she's going to be helping us to understand what tools they might use and how to get over some of the resentful feelings and really work on getting through this, getting over it, and getting healthier, getting better, getting to post-traumatic stress, uh, excuse me, post-traumatic growth. So I'm wondering, whether you're an addict or a partner, What are you doing to feel better? What are you doing to to have recovered to the point where you can turn it around and do for others, right? What can you do to make a difference in the world? And it can be focused on sex addiction recovery, partner recovery, or it can be focused on something totally different. Do you want to go to um, a different country and and do mission work or help them with a specific project? Do you want to volunteer in politics? Do you want to form a Bible study? I mean, what do you want to do? Truly, when I was working with Patrick Carnes and he was encouraging us to make it our own, I was a coach and... I was a therapist, and I was so excited to see that one of the modules was on coaching. And coaching is when you take somebody to the next level. You actualize their potential. You find the good in people, right? And and they really should be healed from a lot of their issues, so that you can take them that next step and they can leave a legacy. And I thought, oh my gosh, I cannot believe Patrick Combs is doing coaching in our very trauma-based addiction modules. So post-traumatic growth is so important for partners. It just is. And that means that what we really have to do is 
make it our own by helping people to see what they need in life, right? What is it that they need to make their life better? I mean, what do you need to make your life better? That's so important to ask and to ascertain because life is more than addiction. It is about recovery and taking it to the next level. So, truly, I'm going to ask you, if you could do something and make a difference in somebody's life, what would that be? How could you experience post-traumatic growth? What would you need to do to get there? And that's what Rebecca and I are going to be talking about, you know, making sense of what happened and and why a partner has to do all that work. And I hate calling it recovery because I don't want the partner to really think that she's in recovery. She's in trauma from what's happened. And how can partners rebuild trust and what boundaries are important to utilize to feel safe? We don't want a partner feeling like every moment is consumed by the aftermath of discovery. So the other part of that is what can I do to help a partner focus on something else? have what um, I've been learning in mindfulness, I just love this, is a new locus of control. You know, they say that a locus of control is when you are absolutely able to create a belief system regarding your experiences and What's so important to do is to decide if if these focuses help you feel more success or to make you feel more failure, right? Well, the number one way to change that and shift it is accept accountability for it initially. So, you know, if you're if you really have been disorganized so you weren't able to squeeze somebody in for an appointment, you wouldn't say, I didn't find a way to squeeze you in. You'd say instead, you know, I wasn't able to get you in the meeting because I booked too many things in my day. And what I can assure you that I will do is figure out a way to leave some holes so that I can squeeze emergencies in because that's totally on me, right? Totally on me. So that's what I really want you to be thinking about is how can you get back? What can you do to find post-traumatic growth? And where can you find more accountability in your own life and own it? You know, as Dr. Phil would say, name it and claim it, because that's always healthy when we really 
hold ourselves accountable. And Rebecca, I'm so happy to have you on the show. I was going to tell our listening audience that my number one coaching principle is I am 100% accountable and responsible for my behavior no matter what happens to me. And so today I'm excited to have you on because we're going to be talking about something that partners didn't want, they didn't ask for, they're not responsible for, and it just kind of happened to them. And how can they get out of that mindset and take back part of their life? Rebecca Rosenblatt, welcome to Sex Health with Carol the Coach. Thank you so much, Carol. It's always such a pleasure to speak with you because I really admire the work you do. And I couldn't agree more that we do need to be accountable and own our behavior no matter what has happened to us. Um, so I'm really glad that you've, you're bringing that point home today. Yeah, well, you know, your book is instrumental in helping partners to become unstuck. And you know how painful it is when your loved one that you trusted betrayed you and how many emotions that can bring up and how out of control partners can feel when they're flooded with all those emotions. So I'm excited that we've got you today to shed some professional guidance on how to ride those waves with a surfboard in healthy ways. Um, can I ask you, when, when a client comes in and says, you know, my husband's an addict, I just learned everything, discovery just occurred, I'm am flooded with feelings, how do I make sense of what happened to me? What do you say to them? Well, first of all, in approaching a professional, they've taken a very important step because it's a time when nothing makes sense. Sometimes it's our entire life decades of a marriage, nothing is making sense. So it's really hard to navigate through that. And a lot of times people around us who mean well, they're trying to support us, and it is very important to have that support system, but sometimes they can misguide us. So first of all, I... I, I tell them that what they're doing is really important in seeking professional help. I also encourage them to have the kind of support that, uh, that resonates with what they are working on with the professional that they're working with, so whether it's a coach or a therapist, um, and then to encourage them to learn as much as they can about the addiction so they don't personalize it. Of course, it's a very personal and intimate injury and wound, so our default thinking will make us personalize it. And this can even get worse when someone is gaslighting us um, and they make us question what we're thinking and feeling. And we're not trusting ourselves that much as is. So doing the homework to really learn everything about how addiction works, um, the ins and outs, and that it's a response, um, it, it's a way of escaping when you don't know what to do with your feelings. So there's more than likely lots of trauma that the addict has experienced possibly in their childhood. Um, this doesn't mean it lets anybody off the hook, but if we know all of that, then we don't personalize it because the questions that come up are, what did I do wrong? Could I have done something differently to prevent it? But the three C's are, we didn't cause it, we can't cure it, we can't control it. So just get, getting that guidance 
on what exactly is addiction and how does it work can sometimes just help people draw that breath and say, okay, someone who is in the know is going to help me navigate through this. So that's really critical. And by the time they come to see us, they've already taken that step. Yeah, that's really important. And so you and I both know um, that you really should seek out a professional because that is, is an expert in this field because this is not your typical client. Sex addiction recovery requires a very specialized niche, and so does partner betrayal. Can you share with us what made you decide to write about partner betrayal? Well, one of the things I wanted to do was um, I just wanted the partner to be able to, first of all, validating the feelings that are very normal and very natural. Um, the other thing I wanted to do was just have a book in which we kind of go back and forth between what each party is feeling. Because like I said, it's so important for the partner to understand how did something like this happen. And, um, you know, I've been there, so I know what it feels like. So I really felt it's so important to be able to, you know, just come alongside a partner and let them know that what they're feeling is legitimate because they can be a roller coaster. Sometimes people say, one minute I'm filled with rage and hurt, next minute I'm numb. One day, I sort of start to feel better. You know, I feel that I'm going to be okay. And next day, I feel like I'm not. I'm going back and forth. Does this mean I'm going backwards? So I thought it was really important to take each feeling and the whole journey from discovery until recovery, um, just have someone come alongside them and show them um, what they're feeling is normal and what to do with it. Absolutely, and the truth of the matter is, the truth of the matter is, I got a FedEx man right outside my my window, and that's my dog. I'm sorry about that. He's always very <laughs> quiet. Um, the truth of the matter is, you know, you have devoted so much of your life to helping sex addicts and partners understand what they need to do to get healthy. And you and I both know that partners really do get, and initially their brain is offline, so they aren't able to think through things. But then it's almost like a fear sets in, and they're not sure how to proceed because proceeding forward has so many ramifications. And I love the fact that you know, in so many ways, your book, as well as today's show, deals with that deep pain of how could he have done this to me? You know, I was just talking with a woman that I hadn't seen forever, and I had said to her, he's really sick, he's not working on anything, you need to detach and start protecting yourself. And she somewhat ignored my request because she didn't feel strong enough to go that direction and now he has taken everything. He has drained them of their bank account. That he he has left her medically compromised and she's like, 
now I feel shame because I didn't do what you told me to do. And that's not ever what we mean to do to somebody who is a partner, although we see their strength. And we know that with good guidance and very chunkable goals, they can get where they want to be. Um, now, let's, let's talk about the partner that does want to get stronger and does want to reconciliate on some level. Um, what do you tell them when it comes to their husband's recovery? How do you believe they might be able to see if their spouse is in good recovery? So first of all, my, my heart hurts for the lady that you mentioned because you and I both see a lot of those scenarios, and it's, I'm so glad that you're able to say when you see that the partner, uh, the addict is not in recovery, um, they're not doing anything to get better, that the partner is very vulnerable and exposed. Having said that, when the addict is deep in recovery work and you see them putting in the effort, a genuine effort, and it's not just that they're doing their work because sometimes people say, I don't know what they're thinking, they're, you know, but I know that they were doing their homework or they went to a 12-step meeting. Those things are very important. Um, but at the end of the day, we're also trying to see um, what their behavior is like with us because we didn't know what these behaviors were until discovery out side of the relationship but when it comes to their behaviors with us in the present moment there is a lot that we can notice and so I always say it's very very important to see because addiction is a symptom of something else if they're working on the cause the trauma or where the addiction got started and they're actually learning to sit with their emotions and process them instead of running away from them, then that's something to get excited about. And at times they might even fumble because, you know, now the thing that they ran to is gone and they're not quite there where they know how to deal with their emotions. But provided you see them making an effort. And also, um, this is the, the magical moment where, it, like you said, you know, the partner has to own it as well. Where both parties, start to see each other as an equal. The addict is not putting their partner down through gaslighting or feeling that, okay, I've done this bad thing and that's it, we'll never be equal. And then the partner feels that the only way I can feel safe is if I'm in control of the situation and I'm taking charge. Those situations uh, usually don't end well. So knowing that we're equal, I think that's the great part. Knowing that the addict is showing up in integrity and uh, is willing to work with us again. And, and your book, you know, Helping Your Heal, there's so much great stuff that shows some of the things the addict can do. And when that stuff is going on, again, something worth getting excited about. So I just love your book, and I send people to it all the time, and they invariably say that it's really been a great guide for them. Oh, well, thank you very much. And, you know, um, we're putting together, I'm putting together a, a book for couples to help them work together towards building that trust if he's in good recovery. And so, you know, you have your addicts, like we just talked about that poor woman who now is left with nothing, and she's really mm -hmm. dealing with survival. 
You know, if you don't have food, clothing, and shelter, nothing else matters. And yet I'm telling her, double up on your meetings. Do things that are free because they will help you in your darkest hour. Now, the good news is so many of my clients, the addicts and the partners, are beginning to work together on redeveloping trust. And and he's doing what he is supposed to do. So what would you tell a client if there is good recovery and she's still having a little bit of trouble rebuilding her sense of safety, trust, and um, her sense that she will be able to trust him and her own judgment. Well, first of all, I'm so glad you're doing a couple's book because it's just wonderful to provide people with that kind of uh, guidance and roadmap. Um, And, yes, trust is the hardest part. So even when you see the addict doing their recovery work and the partner is doing their own recovery work because the partner does need to do that, even though sometimes they might say, well, I didn't cause this. Why do I have to do the work? Because you still need to heal. So even though the partner, both parties may be involved in healing, the trust is a really difficult part. And what we know of trust is it's installed before seven years of age. So if we couldn't trust our caregivers, and now someone that we planned our life with, we couldn't trust them because they betrayed our trust. Uh, that's the hardest part to come by, and especially because the partner sometimes doesn't even trust their own judgment. Um, so I always say that it's important to create safety as a team where both parties can be open and honest. So we're talking about uh, being responsive versus reactive. And what that looks like is if the addict shares something uh, where they say, you know, I had a tough day today, um, somebody came on to me at work, or um, there was a lot of temptation and I was feeling really, really vulnerable, but I'm really happy to say that I stayed the course and uh, the person is being honest with you. Of course, the hurt part of us will immediately say, oh my gosh, you still have those feelings? I thought since you're in recovery, that wasn't even a thing anymore. And it's easy to react to get that and really get upset because when we're hurt, we get upset, we get angry. So it's very easy to do that. But once we do that, the addict may feel very unsafe to share with us again. So it's perfectly okay to share our feelings that it hurts my heart that that's still an issue, uh, but I'm so glad that you're sharing with me because the more you share with me, the more, uh, you know, the lesser I have to wonder, is there something I don't know? Because you are coming, you're volunteering that information. Uh, it feels counterintuitive to the addict. It's like, why would I put this upon my partner? It will only hurt them. But the more the partner hears, um, the likelier they are to feel that you didn't, I didn't, wouldn't have any way of finding this out. You didn't have to tell me, but you've told me. So I'm going to at least, celebrate that and create safety and of course the addict in recovery has to do the same for the partner for the wounded partner create safety so they can ask their questions but in a way that they've been guided into uh, with the help of a therapist or meetings or workbooks 
um, because, you know, there's, again, there's responsiveness, there's genuine sharing of the heart, and then there's the accusation that never gets us anywhere. So those are just some of the pieces where we begin, and from there on, it starts to grow. But if the couple is together, they have to create the safety together. Oh, I absolutely agree with that. And I can feel this energetic um, side of you that you know that if an addict is in good recovery, there really is hope, especially if she is willing to do some things to increase her own sense of safety. Now, you talk about the various stages of grief, and, and you referenced it as the acronym SARA. Can you tell us a little bit about SARA and how that plays into partner betrayal? Um, so SARA is similar to any other grief cycle, and it stands for, um, it stands for shock, anger, resentment, resentment, acceptance, and healing. And, of course, anger and resentment are very, very close together. So at first we're shocked. We're in denial. We can't believe this happened. We want to wake up and find out that it was just a bad nightmare. We start to question ourselves. Um, Could I have done something differently? We may bargain. But this is all part of that shock stage. Next thing, when we realize that this wasn't something I did, this, this addiction is much bigger and it, it's an illness, then uh, we can, uh, actually the partner actually allows themselves to be angry. At first they might be scared, but then they go to the stage of anger at what has happened to them, and they may start to resent the, the addict. So anger at what has happened, resentment towards the addict who put them through that. But as they work, as they heal, as they learn more and more about the addiction and they see how they're working on it together as a team, then they start to accept that uh, as a part of their history. Now, I'm not saying acceptance means, okay, it's all right, you have an addiction. Acceptance is that this is a part of our history and this is what we need to do to stay on track. So this is more of a realistic stage. So this is not, oh my gosh, what has happened? How could it happen? Maybe they don't love me. Maybe my whole life with them is a lie. Then to how could you, um, to actually getting to a place where they gain an understanding. And there's hope because they can get better. I've seen couples that will say, um, that's awful as it sounds and weird as it sounds, the discovery was one of the best things that happened to us because it allowed us to put our, it was a wake-up call that made us put our relationship on track. We actually actively worked on it, and now we're more authentic and emotionally and spiritually and sometimes physically more intimate than we ever were because now we're getting it right. We never had it right, not even when things seemed to be going okay. And that happens with acceptance and healing, and age is the healing part. Um, So I always, it's an easy acronym for people to remember. I know there are many different ways it's referred to, but, you know, shock, anger at what happened, uh, resentment uh, at the attic for putting us through that, acceptance for um, this part of our history and our process and healing and walking together. Got it. That is a wonderful acronym, and it's very proactive, and it really does help. You know, I 
I'm an APSAC um, graduate, and I'm an ICAC graduate. And what I know from APSACs is that there's these three layers, three phases of partner betrayal. And that second phase is anger and grief and mourning and remembrance. And you know how important it is for a partner to be able to understand her feelings around the fact that everything that she thought was true has been contaminated. And a therapist who specializes in this can say, you know, absolutely. Your whole life as you knew it feels contaminated. But I'm wondering if there could be anything that was real and true despite his addiction. Because there's no doubt that an addict compartmentalizes to keep his or her addiction going. And they don't even have a clue as to how their addiction is going to affect their family. If they did, they would stop. But that's part of the sickness, to not deal with reality until reality slaps you in the face, until discovery occurs. And then most addicts that I know get on their knees and say, oh, my gosh, what have I done? What can I do? Um, And so I love the fact that, you know, you also understand how important it is to grieve what they had, what they thought they had, what they may never have, and what they were hoping they would have for their future. And it does require a whole new perspective, but first they have to grieve. And you you have a lot of tools, a lot of um, opportunities for partners to gain some ego strength and some skill sets so that they can begin to rebuild their life. So I want to ask you, you know, what would you tell a partner who said, I want to rebuild my trust and he really is or appears to be working a solid recovery program? What would you tell her or him, depending on the partner? So if the addict is really working uh, a solid program, I mean, that's to me, that's very, as I'm sure it is for you as well, it's very exciting because it gives us hope. Um, like mm-hmm. you said, you know, lots of times people say, what, what was my partner thinking? They just weren't thinking. They were in autopilot. That doesn't mean it didn't wound us. It wounded us deeply if that happens to us. But the important thing is if they are in recovery, first of all, that's hopeful. But you do have to grieve what you thought you had or where you thought you were headed. Life as you will proceed will never be the same. And in some ways, it's a good thing because if we go back to the way things were, um, you know, it didn't take us to a very good place. So in some ways, after that grief stage, there can be some excitement in building something the right way. But it's very important to to go through those stages and to be able to grieve it because you want to take those, you know, those cloudy 
lenses, you want to take those off. You want to clarify them. I even have people do a two-circle exercise where I'll have them put the key uh, event in both circles. So it, in this case, it would be my partner betrayed me. It will be in both circles. In one circle, I'll say, now write everything that this has led you to believe. So this would be thoughts, fears, inferences, um, conclusions, etc., etc. And in the other one, you don't do any of that. And once they see the two, I say, now look at this one here. The actual wound is completely covered, all this stuff that may or may not be true. So I honor where those feelings come from. But if we get caught up in them, we may not get to the wound for a really long time. And when they see it visually, all these things, you know, if I was if I was pretty enough, if we had more time together, if this, if that, if they once a cheater, always cheated. These are things that keep coming up again and again. But a lot of that stuff, we don't know that to be true, and it may in fact not be true. Um, but when that happens, it doesn't allow, it shrouds the actual um, wound, which is I was betrayed by my partner. So first and foremost, I said just Try to look at that wound, that primal wound, and and give yourself the time and the space to address that clearly without this cloudy stuff, because that does cloud our judgment. That's when we start to say, I don't even trust my own judgment. Many people will say that to me, I don't trust my own judgment, because they have all these thoughts that are just kind of taking them all over the place. So sometimes it's a metaphor of, you know, you, you're sitting on the side of a highway and you're watching this chaotic traffic going by, you're observing it, or you're in a train and you see the scenes going by, you observe those scenes without becoming a part of them. So it's watching without judgment. So those are some of the things where it's exciting if the addict is actually doing their work. They've given us the space to start to look at some of these things instead of worrying about, oh, my gosh, are they going to do it again? They're not in recovery. What does this mean? And, and sometimes we have to face that, that they may not want to embrace recovery. Now, is the two-circle plan in your book? Yes, it is. So remind everybody the name of your book, which is really the name of the podcast today, as well as where they can get it. So it's Overcoming Betrayal. You can definitely get it on Amazon, and a lot of the booksellers can get it for you. Um, since it, it's a little bit older, it may not be on the shelf. In some cases, I've seen it still on the shelf. Um, but you can definitely get it on Amazon, and you can, you can order it through most major bookstores. Um, they can get it for you. But Amazon, you know, if you have Prime, it's there the next day. So that's often the easiest. It's overcoming betrayal. Yeah, and really, it was one of the first books on partner betrayal. It wasn't the first, but it was one of the first. And I remember being so thankful to somebody, um, in addition to Stephanie Carnes, who wrote, you know, Mending a Shattered Heart, and Barb Steffens, who, with Marsha Means, who wrote Your Sexually Addicted Spouse, I was so happy that we had another resource that seemed to go a little bit further. You know, I don't know if you feel like this, um, Rebecca, but I do. And that is we are pioneers in this field, and we're growing by leaps and bounds, and we're much smarter today 
than we were five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago when it comes to sex addiction and partner betrayal. What do you think? We wholeheartedly, we know so much more now. Um, And even from the time that I got trained years ago to now, I myself have learned so much more. And I'm so grateful that even in our uh, in our community of healers, there's more and more stuff as we learn and as we grow as a community of healers that's coming up. More and more stuff is coming up, and we know so much more. And even Dr. Patrick Carnes, who is a pioneer, he's done so much research um, that, and as soon as there's new stuff, that's the beauty of his work and even Stephanie's work. They're always refining the new additions um, to some of their workbooks. They've included more and more stuff. They're always refining and perfecting. And now that sex addiction has come out of the closet and some of the celebrities, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking Russell Brand among others, who are, who have opened up, who've come out of that shameful closet and who've opened up on their own struggle and their own journey to healing and recovery, um, it's getting lesser and lesser tabooed and it's giving people the permission to say, this is a real thing. It can happen to anybody and there is help and people can get to a place where they might want to help others. Um, Or at the very least, they start to say many people in recovery will tell me, I look back at that person, that addict that I was, and who was that person? I don't even recognize them. How could I have done that to my partner? How could I have wounded this person that I love? And the two can coexist because like Dr. Karn says, that you know addiction is present when there's contradiction. So you can, you can love your spouse and still put them through so much pain. It, it's not intentional. You're not doing the addiction to cause pain, but boy, does it ever hurt. It's one of the deepest wounds. Oh, absolutely. And, and I know I wanted to talk a little bit about boundaries. And sometimes um, men, uh, addicts, see boundaries as punishment or as consequences. And they're not really meant to um, punish the addict. They're really meant to protect the partner. So what would you tell a partner about boundaries and what boundaries do you think might be important for somebody who's fresh out of discovery, done the disclosure, and now is in that place of trying to decide, can we make it work? So I always believe in coming alongside the partner, depending upon the stage they're at, the questions that are coming up, the things that make them nervous, and then coming up with boundaries. And that principle is very clear. It's uh, boundaries are there to protect the partner, and in some cases, even the addict. Uh, they're not there to punish anybody. So, for instance, somebody who's just discovered the initial stage, the partner may say, I can't even share the bedroom with with the addict. I can't undress in front of the addict. I cannot have any physical contact with the addict. In other cases, it might be, okay, I'm all right with maybe cuddling, but no more than that. I can't disrobe in front of you. There might be other uh, points where the person may say, okay, If I find out that you're acting out, whether it's with porn or some of the other behaviors, 
then that means that's it. You're moving into the basement or, um, you know, you're doing 30 and 30. So 30 days of either meetings, sessions, whatever, each day you're doing something to get back on track. Um, so there's different boundaries and different consequences. But one thing that I always emphasize is that it does change over time. So the person who has just discovered the world has just been blown up, their boundaries will be very different. They may not even be able to, uh, you know, be anywhere near exposed in any way or have any tolerate any kind of physical contact. But there might be people further along in their recovery who can tolerate certain things but not others. And then there are the hard lines that are like the, the forever rules, you know, with respect to acting out, with respect to transparency, et cetera, where those things are longer term. So I always say after the first 30 days, revisit the boundaries and see what's working. Maybe you need to add something. Maybe you need to change something. And then, you know, you revisit at the 90-day mark and so on. But the partner also, what you open up with, that we need to be accountable to. So, for instance, um, I've had people where they say that if I catch you with porn, if you ever go to porn again, that's it. For a month, you're not sleeping in the master bedroom. And guess what happens? When they catch the person, they say, that's it. You're out of the house. I'm filing for a divorce. So in that case, they did not follow their part of the bargain. Uh, They did not follow the consequence. Now, if that needs to be the consequence that one more time I catch you with porn, I'm done, that's fine. But then it needs to be stated uh, when the boundaries are being established. But we can't say A means B and then go to something else altogether. So this is part of creating that contract. Um, So if it means that's it, it's a deal breaker, that's fine. But you can't set one boundary and then change the consequences on the addict because they too are trying to make sense of the world and they too are trying to bring some order into their lives where there was previously a lot of chaos. Yeah, absolutely. And that order then helps them to feel safe. And we are always working to keep the partner safe or to increase safety. So that that really helps explain, um, you know, the need for boundaries and clear boundaries. Because one of the things we do tell partners is do not set up boundaries if you can't um, stick with them. You know, that's just no good. It's like uh, doing parenting and giving consequences and then not following through with the consequences. So I like the fact that you talk about they can change over time and to recheck it in 30 days and see if it's still appropriate, does it need to be changed at all, altered, tweaked, whatever. Um, You know, I know that you've worked with women who feel like every moment is consumed by the aftermath of discovery. Their whole life is about what he did, and they can't seem to move away from that. What would you advise a partner who can't create her own identity because she's so consumed by what has happened to her? So one of the things that I recommend is some level of containment. Um, 
so initially, there may be a lot of questions that might be harder, uh, but uh, then, you know, you get to a point where you do have to say that, okay, you know what, we will limit it to maybe one question a day unless something big comes up or the discussions will not last for more than 20 minutes because after that we're looping. We're just going round and round. We're not doing anything new. Or uh, we will do uh, regular check-ins with each other, whether they're daily or weekly check-ins. But there's some way of saying that not every conversation should be about that. And maybe we will take a technology-free hour every evening where we're not talking about the addiction, where we're just hanging out and we're, we're trying to just be a regular couple, whether that means going for a walk together, cooking a meal together, but we're trying to do something outside the addiction. Um, So that really helps. The other thing is um, in EMDR, we do this exercise that's really so profound, and that is when we are overwhelmed. So we always have the individual say, think of a container something like a vault with an airtight seal on it, like, you know, those bank walls. Um, Or, you know, it can be something like that. can be big, it can be smaller, but something that is solid. And then what you do is when you are overwhelmed, you take sense of your body and your mind, so you sort of mind, body, and soul. What am I thinking? What am I fearing? Where am I feeling it in my body? Do I have a constricted chest? Is my gut turning? And you do a felt sense of where are you feeling in your body and what am I feeling, my emotions and my heart, my mind, my soul. And then one by one, you literally physically imagine those things leaving you and going into the container. The constriction in your chest is going into the container. The, the, your gut that's turning is going in the container. Everything's going in the container. And then you, when it's all done, you close the container and you make it airtight And now it's going to keep there until you need to revisit it or not. And people say, this is crazy. Now that I feel lighter, I don't have the constriction. My jaw is more relaxed. I'm not as panicky. And this is something, you know, we also use with panic attacks. Uh, But when it comes to a discussion, you can't just say 20 minutes, we're done, that's it. It doesn't work like that. We have to park it somewhere. And we have to park it where we can come to some form of uh, resolution or conclusion. It may take a few conversations. So what that looks like is I'm flooded right now, meaning I have physical symptoms. So my heart is racing, my face is flushed, my chest is tight. As soon as we have physical symptoms, I'm flooding right now. We just need to take a little bit of time out. Let's talk about it tonight after supper or tomorrow or on the weekend. But when we set aside that time, we have to set aside a time where we will go back to it. Otherwise, you know, you can't trust that. Um, and we're talking trust is very delicate in that stage. So we have to park it with any argument. We need to park it somewhere. We can't just say, can't talk about it, that's it. Why are you stuck in the past and all those things that we hear? It's, okay, we need to take a break from this conversation. Let's talk about it such and such time. As soon as you park it there and your feelings in the container, you can actually get some relief. And that's something that partners need so desperately, that sense of relief, just to break from being in it 24-7. That is such great advice. And I'm a big believer in containers. I'm a big believer in those metaphors that help to create safety. And, you know, you and I have both heard about how addicts, um, they are able to 
put one thing in a box and then act out, and then they put their addiction in a box or in a container, and then they have the family, and they actually do that to be able to continue the addiction. Well, the container you're referencing is a container for safety. You said it comes straight out of the MDR. I do MDR, so I know how healthy it is for partners to understand that they can create lots of different visuals to keep themselves safe, whether that is a plastic or um, plexiglass force field where they can see out, but they don't get hurt by the many things that could hurt them. Or if it's a if it's a vine of roses that they can see is standing between him and her, so that the thorn can catch all the things that might hurt her, especially in early recovery. So I love, love, love that idea. And, and you know, our minds and our ability to visualize is by far our strongest tool, our greatest weapon, and also the strength that we need to change our lives. Now, we have to end the show, but I'm going to ask you, how can people get a hold of you? And what is one last thing you would like to share with our listening audience? Um, so you can reach me through my website, which is talkwithrebecca.com. There is um, there's a, a, a contact form there. And the last thing that I want to share is there is always hope. Sometimes there may not be hope for the coupleship, but there's always hope for an individual when they commit to healing. Ideally, you want to be able to heal as partners, um, but even if a partner is not willing, there is always hope in our own healing and our own ability to move past the tragedy that has shaken us and created a tsunami of emotions. And a professional will always help you ride that wave and find that direction. You're not alone. Take the support and the resources that are available to you, but there is always hope, when, even when we feel completely hopeless. That's the thing I want to leave your audience with. Oh, I appreciate that so much, and that's what I say we as therapists are beacons of hope because we've seen it happen over and over again. It's hard work, but it's almost always worth it to keep your family together and to fall back in love with somebody that you never thought you could trust again. And you know from the premise of my book, when he helps her to heal, it helps him to heal too. So, Rebecca Rosenbach, thank you so much for your wisdom today. And keep us posted on the many projects. Thanks for having me. Make it a good day. So that was Rebecca Rosenblatt, and she is an amazing woman who really has made it her own and was one of the first to be so instrumental in partners looking at life a little bit differently. Well, that's the end of the show. So as I say, every, every show will only be one of you at all times so fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. And I'll see you next week for more Sex Help with Carol, the coach.